Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Oh, you had an extra hour of sleep. Come on, good morning. All right, let's do this thing. Romans chapter 8. Let's go. Chilly. Extra hour of sleep. November. No shave November nonetheless. My name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see you. We are journeying through the greatest tra- chapter in the Bible. Romans chapter 8. In fact, the greatest chapter ever written. We have just a few more messages. We're going to be ending up at the end of November. Today we're just going to handle two verses, verses 26 and 27. So if you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to use the one that's in the seat rack in front of you. If you don't have it, you can keep that Bible as your own. That's our gift to you. Maybe if you just forgot yours today, I I still would encourage you to open it up and follow along with me. You can find Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27 on that Bible on either page 740 or 944, depending on what, what uh, version you're using. Well, I am going to read the text in just a moment and pray. But before I do that, let's just sort of orient ourselves to where we are in Romans 8. We've been working through this great chapter for the past few weeks, and I think if you would summarize the message of Romans 8, you could, you could probably summarize it as this great chapter about assurance. God, through the Holy Spirit and the hand of Paul, at this moment in the book or the letter that he's writing to the Roman church, is wanting to encourage the church that the God who saved you by his sovereign grace will bring you all the way Home. In fact, we've been reading in our community groups this book by pastor, a pastor in South Carolina who's actually from England. His name is Derek Thomas, and he has written this short little helpful book called How the Gospel Brings Us All the Way Home, and it's a book just on Romans chapter 8. So I think this chapter is essentially about assurance for Christians to embolden us and empower us. But we could also say that it may be this chapter is about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. The first thing that we see in the first few verses of this chapter is that the Holy Spirit enables us to fulfill the holiness or the law of God. We also see a few verses later in verses 9 through 13 that the Holy Spirit actually helps us to fight sin, that by the Spirit, In us, we are able to say no to broken, counterfeit joys and to say yes to God and obedience to Him. The Spirit also, as we looked at a few weeks ago, adopts us and it fills us, it assures us, it gives us this sense that we, in fact, are children of God. And then last week we looked at how, despite the fact that we live in a broken world, and despite the fact that our lives and all of creation is out of joint, that the Holy Spirit is in us, giving us a sort of foretaste, as Robert prayed just a, a while ago, a foretaste, a deposit, a first fruit of the glory that is to come. And we, while we are left on this earth, will endure tremendous suffering and difficulty. 
And so the question may be, as we finished last week, is, well then, has God left us alone to fend for ourselves? And the answer comes in this next few verses, in this next explanation of the Holy Spirit's work. No, God has not left us for ourselves, but he has given us the Holy Spirit to help us pray. Let me read these two verses and then pray and ask the Lord to help us. Paul writes these words in Romans 8, verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts, see, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. All right, here's what we're going to do. In just a moment, we're going to have the outline up on the screen, and we're going to work our way through it. But before we put anything up, let me just tell you that I think this text asks and answers for us two questions. The first is, why the Spirit helps us pray? And the second is, how the Spirit helps us pray? So with that, let me pray and ask the Spirit to help us, even as we look at these words. Oh, Father, we, we've been praying it a lot lately, and I pray it again. What we know not, teach us. What we have not and truly need, give us. And what we are not, oh, we beg that you would make us by the power of your word and by the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, stir our affections for Jesus. Cause our minds to turn away from all of the distractions of our day and of our lives and even in this room and cause our hearts to zero in on the beautiful fellowship of the Trinity, of your work for your people and the great assurance that that should give us. And then, Lord, finally, I pray for unbelievers that are surely in this room in a crowd this size, that, God, today you would make the work of Jesus, the Son, on the cross so beautiful and so clear and so irresistible that by your Holy Spirit that we are are thinking about and learning about today, that, that by your Holy Spirit you would draw and woo cold, dead hearts to life so that they can finally see Jesus and love him and follow him and obey him. Lord, I pray that you do all these things for the display of the surpassing worth of Christ in your glory and for our eternal, never-ending joy. In Christ's name, amen. So question number one. Why does the Spirit help us pray? Why do we need this help? Well, he answers it. We're just going to walk through this text. 
Verse 26 there, the Spirit helps us pray in our weakness. So answer number one to the question of why we need the help of the Spirit is to pray is because we are weak. Don't we just love underdogs in America? I mean, we, we just, it's kind of woven into the fabric of our, of our culture. We love to celebrate weakness, but only when that weakness eventually wins, right? I mean, come on, what happens in Rudy, your favorite football movie? He gets in the game and makes the tackle. What do we love about the bad news bears? That they eventually make it to whatever the Little League World Series or whatever, and they win. What do we love about the great Italian-American Sylvester Stallone? in a fine piece of American cinema, Rocky. (laughs) He knocks out the Russian, right? The Russian doesn't knock him out. That's Kwame's favorite movie, isn't it? Yeah, he likes that fight scene. We love an underdog, but only if the underdog eventually wins. But the story of the scriptures about our weakness is that we are not just underdogs. We don't muster strength at the end to finally hit the shot or throw the punch or catch the pass. We are underdogs, but it's even worse than that. We are underdogs that are completely unable. We are unable to offer anything that would appease God and His holiness. We, the scriptures are clear in this, are separated from God because we have all rebelled against God. And it, friends, it has rendered us not just less than optimal, not just minimized, but weak and helpless and unable. And because of that, we need the Spirit's help. And it's not just that we are weak, but we... We then secondly, and this is the second reason we see in this text why the Spirit helps us pray. He says it there in verse 26, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. So not only are we weak, but we also don't even know what we should pray for. We are like little children who think that they are wise, but are clueless. Just think about all the things that mankind has accomplished. I'm still fascinated by this. You know, I can pick up a phone uh, and I can call my parents who are 3,000 miles away in California and I dial their number, like on the phone. And by the way, kids, there used to be these things called phones that would actually attach to the wall and there was a, like a wire connecting. It's crazy, I know. There's a wire connecting that phone. And then there's, there's a network of wires I know it's crazy. I know it's crazy if you're under the age of 20. But there's a network of wires that stretches all throughout our country. And then there's a person on the other end where there's this other thing called like a phone that's hooked into the wall. And then they answer it and they pick it up. And the amazing thing is, is that your voice in Columbus, Georgia can be heard instantly with no delay in El Centro, California, 3,000 miles away. That is amazing that we would have the ingenuity to do that. And it gets even more unbelievable now, and you know this, boys and girls, they have these things called cellular phones. If the fact that your words can travel across a wire instantaneously to people thousands of miles away, how about this? You can speak into a little plastic box that's not connected to anything, and there's something up there that grabs your words 
Well, come on, think about it. Grabs your words and they're floating around there in the sky. And then it sends your words down into another little plastic box on the other side of the world instantaneously. What? That's amazing. That's amazing. The things that we can do, mankind. And yet in all of our ingenuity and intelligence and brilliance, we still don't even know what to pray for. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that humbling? Come on. We can send a man to the moon, but yet when it gets right down to it, sin has so disabled us that we don't even know what to pray for. In a strange sort of way, this is, I think, a beautiful paradox. This is part of God's sovereign plan. Remember what we talked about last week, that behind all of this futility is a good and gracious fatherly God who has designed this, who has subjected creation to futility for the display of his surpassing worth and saving of people for himself. And he, in a beautiful way, is behind and designing our weakness so that he can be glorified in us. Listen to this about our weakness, this beautiful verse from Paul's struggle with his infirmity in the flesh, whatever that was. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10, he says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you feel weak this morning? Do you feel confused, like you don't even know which way is up? Well, be encouraged. That's why the Spirit is with you, in you, to help you pray. Because we are weak and we do not know what to pray for. So then question number two, how then does the Spirit help us pray? And again, this is not rocket science. This is not like cell phone technology. I love how simple the scriptures are. If we will just stare at it long enough, it will become clear to us. How does the Spirit help us pray? He answers that for us. He intercedes for us. The second part of verse 26, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. So Let's look at that word. What does it mean to intercede? It's, it's such a rich and powerful word. The word intercede means to plead the case for someone else, to act as a, as a mediator. And in this text, in verse 26, Paul is saying to us that the Spirit is interceding. He's pleading for us to God because we don't even know what we should ask for. But it gets even better than that. And I'm getting ahead of myself in a few weeks when we get to Romans 8.34. We don't have just one intercessor. This beautiful chapter says that we actually have two intercessors. Let me skip down to Romans 8 verse 34. Oh, I can't wait to get to this text in a couple weeks. It says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
So think about this, friends. This is, this is amazing. We have two persons of the Trinity interceding for us. Jesus in the court of heaven nullifying any accusations against us, saying, no, it's atoned for, I handled it. As, as Reuben read for us this morning from Psalm 103, he has extinguished our sin. He's removed it as far as the east is from the west, right? Now think about that. Why does it say east? I know we've done this before, but let's just meditate on east to west versus north to south. And why the scripture says east to west of what Jesus has done with our sin. That's what Psalm 103 is actually looking forward to in the New Testament. If you're on the North Pole and you go south to the South Pole, there's a point where you get to the South Pole. Right? There's a finite point. And then you're there. And then you have to start coming back north, right? But if you're on the equator and I tell you to start walking east... You will be walking east forever. And if I tell you to start walking west, you will walk west forever. As opposed to north and south. There's a fine. Some of you are like, oh man, I was with you. Like, ah. But the point is that Christ interceding for us in heaven has removed our sin. He's removed our guilt. He's removed any accusation. Friends, herein is the gospel, the good news of what God... If you're a Christian, this is what makes you a Christian. That God the Son, the eternally preexistent Son, God became flesh and took on the likeness of sinful flesh, as we read in Romans 8 earlier on this month. And He lived in beautiful, perfect obedience to every law and holiness of God, where we have rebelled, he obeyed, and he satisfied God's righteousness in his life. And because he's perfect in the flesh, and because he's the eternal, holy son of God, he then lays down his life on the the cross as a substitute, as a sacrifice. And because he is who he is, fully God and fully perfect man, his sacrifice is sufficient to bear the weight of all the sins of all the people that would ever turn and trust in him. And so Jesus lays down his life on the cross, not just as an example of his love for us, although it's certainly that, not just an example of selflessness, although it's certainly that, but much more primarily, Jesus lays down his eternally pre-existent holy godness and humanity on the cross to die as a satisfactory substitute for our sin so that the guilt that was ours, so that the accusation that is true is no longer true because Jesus satisfied it for us on the cross. And in the Bible, this is amazing, in the Bible, in Romans 8.34, the Bible is saying that every time an accusation comes against us from our flesh or from the enemy, the devil, Jesus is saying, no, 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 because they are trusting in me and not in themselves. It is not true. And so we have this intercessor, Jesus, at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and then we have this intercessor like down in the muck and mire of our daily lives the holy spirit who is like interceding in the courts of our hearts and be encouraged be encouraged son you're gods you're gods you're gods 
John Murray, this Scottish uh, theologian from the 20th century. That sounds so long ago, like it was just like 14, but the 20th century is like the 1900s. I'm still getting used to saying that. From about 50 years ago, he said this. The children of God have two divine intercessors. Christ is their intercessor in the court of heaven, while the Holy Spirit is their intercessor in the theater of their own hearts. Oh, friends, that is encouraging. And we know that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us, not because we are good, not because we have achieved anything, not because we're better than anybody else, but because he has worked salvation in our hearts. And that's what Robert read for us this morning from Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. Let me read it again. I think it bears reading again. This is what Paul writes in Titus 3. He says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So so let me explain that verse. That is saying that, tying it together with what we're reading in Romans 8, that the Holy Spirit is interceding for Christians daily, Because he has wrought a previous work in their life. He has regenerated them. What does that word regenerate mean? It means to bring back to life. And so therein is the the very essence of the gospel. This, friends, is what it means to be a Christian. The Bible is clear. We are dead in our trespasses and sins without hope. We're dead. Dead people can't have faith. Dead people can't make decisions. Dead people can't take self-improvement courses. Dead people can't do anything. Dead people stay dead. And the good news of the gospel is that because God is rich in mercy when he saves a person, he, by the Holy Spirit, makes them alive. He gives them breath. He gives them faith. He gives them repentance so that now because they're alive, They can look away from themselves and finally look to Jesus who bore their punishment on the cross and who now gives them his righteousness. And because the Holy Spirit has made Christians alive, he then doesn't leave them, but he stays with them and intercedes for them on a daily, secondly, is that even a word, second-by-second basis? Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. To be made alive by the Spirit of God. To be given eyes and a heart and ears so that you can see and believe and hear and trust in Jesus. And then to have the Holy Spirit in you so that you follow him. And he is your intercessor. So the Holy Spirit helps us pray by interceding for us. And then secondly, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings. It says there, At the end of verse 26, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So what about these groanings? Who, this is a bit of a tricky little 
way of putting this sentence together here. So let's think about this. Who is doing the groaning? Is it us or is it the Spirit? This is actually a, a kind of a debated issue. I mean, there's lots of stuff written on this. It seems that uh, if we just read it clearly, that it is the, actually the Holy Spirit that's doing the groaning. So it says, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So it's the Holy Spirit who's doing the interceding and he's also groaning. But then there's other people that say, no, 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 no. I mean, we can't have any imperfection in the Spirit of God because it's understandable that we would groan because we're broken and we don't know what we should pray for, but the Spirit is perfect, and so there's actually a good bit of little debate as to what's going on in this verse. I like the explanation that I read from John Stott. He's another dead British guy from the last century in the 1900s, and he wrote this. He said, true, God's creation and God's children groan because of their present state of imperfection. We know that, friends. We groan. But there is nothing imperfect about the Holy Spirit. So he's saying this, the Holy Spirit doesn't need to groan. It must be, therefore, that the Holy Spirit identifies with our groans, with the pain of the world and the church, and shares in the longing for the final freedom of both. We and he groan together. Okay, friends, you may be saying, okay, Brad, whatever. I don't, why even talk to me about that theological debate? Come on, let's just, let's just get through this. Give me something I can go with on Tuesday. I want you to see how beautiful this is, that, that the Holy Spirit identifies, like he comes into our pain, he, and he, he comes alongside of it, and he's like inside our groan. The God, the creator, the sovereign, eternal God of the universe is coming into your groan and groaning, not because he's broken, but he is groaning with you. Think about the humility of God and the, the fatherly ache of God for his people. That reminds me of, of Jesus with, with Lazarus in John chapter 11. I'm fascinated by this. In John chapter 11, Jesus' friend Lazarus died, right? And his sisters, Mary and Martha, are frustrated with Jesus because they think if Jesus would have been a little bit more prompt at their request to come to Lazarus when he was sick, that maybe Jesus would have showed up beforehand and been able to heal him before he died. But Jesus, knowing that Lazarus was going to eventually die and that he would eventually resurrect Lazarus, seems to take his own sweet time and sort of puts Mary and Martha off, stays where he was at that point, and it, in fact, Lazarus does die. And Jesus is taking his sweet time to wait to get to Lazarus' tomb for him to die because Jesus knows that God is going to bring Lazarus back from the dead. Right? Jesus, I mean, it's almost, friends, I've said this before, it's almost as if God has this thing rigged. <laughs> and because he does. But here's the amazing thing about this chapter. In fact, some of you, this is the only verse you memorized in VBS because you needed to memorize a verse. And it was the shortest verse in the Bible. 
And so you just wanted a piece of candy, so you memorized John 11. I don't know what it is, somewhere in the 40s. Two words. Jesus wept. Jesus, who knows that in just a few minutes here, he's going he's to cause that stone to roll away. He's going to speak one word, and Lazarus, who was dead, will now be alive. He knows it's, it's all going to happen in a minute here. And he knows that mourning is going to turn to joy in just an instant. And here's the response of Jesus. It's not, oh, come, come now, Mary and Martha. Why are you crying, everybody? Where's your faith in me? Just hold on for a second. I've got my own time here. Come on now, come on. What are you doing? You faithless little kids. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps. The, the God and creator of the universe weeps even though he knows that he's about to change it all. In like manner, the Holy Spirit like comes and groans, like he groans. Come on, friends. He groans for you. Friends, we just read in Romans 8, 18 through 25 that there's coming a day when he's going to tear back the curtain and everything's going to be made right and he will cause us to experience ever-increasing joy, never-ending satisfaction, and it will all be worth it, friends. These broken bodies that are failing, this broken world that is evil, all of that will once and for all be, be made right. Every valley will be full. Every mountaintop will be leveled. Every disease will perish. Every sickness, every tear will be dried up. But even then, even though God knows that's coming for you and for all creation, he still groans with us. That is so, like, that's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. God groans with us. I think it just gives us a picture of the enduring patience of God. He is a father who is not like this earthly father who is so tempted when his children whine to say, come on now, come on. Toughen up, get over it. He, he groans with us. And then finally, how the Spirit helps us pray is He helps us pray according to the will of God. Let me read verse 27 again. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, friends, this is spectacular. Let's trace the argument of verse 27. So God the Father knows our hearts. That's where it says there he searches hearts. He also knows the mind of the Spirit. So God knows our hearts, and he knows the mind of the Spirit. So God the Father clearly knows our hearts. He knows the mind of the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit. And the Spirit always prays perfectly for us, because he prays in line with the will of the Father. It says that the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So then, listen to this, I think this implication here, even when we pray for things that are not best for us, or even when we pray wrongly, 
or even when we don't pray at all for things that we should be praying for when we cry out to God, we can depend and trust and lean on and take comfort in the Spirit's always perfect intercession for us. One writer put it this way. He says that he corrects our broken prayers on the way up. And then here, I want you to see this, and then we're going to conclude and come to the Lord's table together. Because I know one thing about this church, and and we as pastors have made you this way, and I think it's good for us. But don't we love the sovereignty of God here? I mean, isn't that just like our lifeline in a broken world? But here's the thing about people that love the sovereignty of God. Sometimes we wrestle then with our responsibility, right? Don't, don't, I got one person agreeing with me. Thank you, sister, for being honest. We got one, two, on a spiritual. We wrestle with our responsibility, don't we, sometimes? If God is sovereign and tomorrow is set, he knows the end from the beginning, all of that. Don't we wonder kind of how that works out? And aren't we sort of complexed by that? Notice that is not an issue for the Holy Spirit. Now think about this. The Holy Spirit does not say, well, I know that God has a will and it's set, therefore I'm not going to pray. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, knows that the Father has set all things according to His sovereign will, but yet that doesn't cause the Holy Spirit to throw up His hands and say, well, then why should I pray? Evidently, the Trinity thinks that prayer is necessary even within itself. And I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that I think that the Spirit of God has better doctrine than we do. And so if the Holy Spirit, if the, if the Trinity itself is not deterred by the fact that it has all things set and that all of human history and all of the timeline of creation is unfolding according to the beautiful plan of God, that doesn't push the Spirit away from interceding for us. It draws the Holy Spirit into praying for us perfectly according to the sovereign will of the Father. Whoa! Whoa! Prayer, friends, is essentially the privilege of entering into the fellowship of the Trinity. By the work of the Son and His bearing sin on the cross and defeating it and rising again in victory over it, and then the work of the Holy Spirit applying that truth to our lives, making us alive so that we can trust in Him, and then coming alongside of us for our daily needs Prayer is entering into the privilege of the fellowship of the Trinity. Access to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. If this is the case then, how then should we pray? Do you notice that this scripture, this great scripture on prayer doesn't tell us anything about how we should pray? Well, I'm just going to give us a few implications if this is case. If this is the case, how should we pray? One, We should pray honestly. 
we should come to God with a, with a certain rawness. This is not an academic exercise. He knows our hearts. He's not interested in how articulate we are or whether we know certain words. Friends, even the most articulate and even the most brilliant of Christians, still this verse applies to them. We don't know what to pray for. Think about that. Paul's not just saying, you know, for some of those Christians that, you know, really haven't read their Bibles too much or some of these folks that had a bad background or some of these folks that didn't grow up in Sunday school or whatever. No, no, all of us, we don't know what to pray for. So we should come to him with honest humility, and there should be a a certain rawness to our prayers. Jesus says it this way in regards to coming to him. He says in Matthew 11, 28, 30, come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, when you come to Jesus and groan, when you come to the Father and groan, when by the Holy Spirit you groan and it's raw and it's awkward and it's not articulate, then friends, you are right where God wants you to be. We should come to him honestly. And then secondly and finally, we should come to him confidently. There should be a a certain component of reckless abandon to our prayers. He hears our prayers, not because of us, but because of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So it should produce in us this this confidence, this, this boldness, this, this audacity to, to go to him and, and, and get it out before the Father. For those of you in this room that uh, went to the United States Military Academy, and I know there's a few of you, the first day that you're there, this happened to me on June 28th, 1989, was my first day at the Military Academy. And you have to do this thing called reporting to the cadet in the red sash and you have to knock on this door and like two hours before that you were like a high school kid with you know back in the 80s now I had the hardy boys the big you know feathered cut you know I was was getting it done it was late 80s you know you know what I'm talking about a little feather you know I'd do my thing I mean you show up that first day they shave your head and they rip you apart man I mean two hours in you're just nervous you're shaking And then they dress you in this PT uniform and they make you wear like these dress shoes and have these black socks that they pull, you have to pull all the way up to your knees just to kind of make you feel stupid. And then you got to knock on this door like a certain number of times. It's been 25 years, so I can't remember, praise God. (laughs) And there's just this one sentence you have to say, but you have to say it perfectly. So... And then the upper-class cadet says, enter. You open the door, and you have to say some goofy little kind of grammatically hard sentence. Sir, new cadet evangelista reports to the cadet in the red sash for the first time as ordered. Now, as a 43-year-old man with, you know, as a civilian, that's easy for me to say right now. But when you're getting, like, absolutely blasted 
And when you just got your head shaved and when stress, like people bearing down and there's like people just spitting your face. I mean, that is, that's hard to get out. And that is, you should see the folly of that moment. Sir. <laughs> Try again, new cadet. Try again. It took me like 15 minutes to get that one sentence out perfectly. Shaking. Wanting my mama. God is not like that. We, we come to him anxious and nervous because the, the world is broken. We come to him fearful and fretful. We come to him with little faith. We come to him not knowing what we should pray for. We come to him weak, but we knock on the door and we say, because of what the Son has done and because the Holy Spirit is in me and has made me alive and it's correcting my broken, futile prayers, God, I come to you confidently now with reckless abandon and I come groaning. Here I am, Father. Here I am. Help me. Like, help me with reckless abandon. Help me, God. Help me. That's what this text is calling us to do. To not be prim and proper and boxed in people who want to protect some doctrine or thing. We want to come to him and we want to say, Abba, Father, help me. Help me. Help me with loved ones who don't know Jesus who don't know Jesus, and if they do not repent, God, if you do not give them a heart to believe, if you do not open their eyes, they will perish forever. Help me. Help me. Save them, Jesus. Lord, we pray for this city. We should come to him and we say, God, help this city. We, we should not be oh, okay with brokenness and homelessness and, and 360-something orphans in foster care in our city when, when we have huge houses and, and all sorts of trinkets. Like We should not be okay with that. So God, would you change our city? Like Would you rescue people? Would, would you cause us to be lit with a fire for eternity and the reality of your grace like we have never been before. And God, we don't even know how to pray or what to pray or how to execute the answer to our prayers. But God, would you help us be a church that is more on mission. And God, the world, the need just not in our city, but in this world is enormous. There are thousands of unreached people groups. And so God, would, would you come? I don't know how you're going to do it, God, but, but would you come in and from people in this room, from, from people who have everything in the world, would you cause them to, to say no to the comforts of life here and to get on a plane and give the rest of their life to the gospel in an unreached people group and would God would there be a day maybe when we empty this sanctuary because our passion for the display of the glory of God amongst our neighbors in this city and the nations compels us to pray prayers with reckless abandon that you would use us for something more than other than just encouraging Sundays after Sunday. And God, would you light a fire in the dads and the fathers and the men of this church? Would you cause them to take seriously their call to do more than to teach their kid how to throw a curveball, but 
to teach them about the surpassing worth of Christ. Would you light a fire in men? And would you use us to give our lives away for what really matters, the display of the surpassing worth of Christ? And God, would you do a thousand other things that we don't even know what we should pray for? And would you use us up for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name.